Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com. Now today, we're talking with Army Special Forces veteran about his life and his victory in one of the most significant legal cases in the history of the military. It's also one of the most shocking and devastating claims denials we've reported on. Master Sergeant Richard Stayskill, the soldier who moved Congress to change a more than 70-year-old law to allow service members to file medical malpractice claims against the Department of Defense, recently had his own claim denied by the U.S. Army. Now, in his words, the denial of my claim by the Department of Defense is a blatant act of betrayal, not only to myself, but every service member out there. He said he stands here today on behalf of an entire generation and on behalf of future generations to ensure that what has happened to him will never, ever again happen. And he's going to give it every breath he has. Being diagnosed with lung cancer, there's no guarantee on the breaths. But I know the fight in Richard Stasekul is going to be stronger than ever. Richard Stasekul, welcome to CBS Eye on Vets. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. You know, I've covered you. We've covered you at ConnectingVets.com. You've been in virtually every publication as you fought for the Ferris Doctrine to get changed or as you fought for some sort of tort reform to be rolled into the NDAA of a few years ago. And you won that thing. And I put you right up there with like the PACT Act. I was like, he's a hero. Here's a guy that's making a difference. Challenged the system, took it on. And like you and Rosie Torres for toxic burn pits, I, I consider this a win. And then to find out what the heck recently happened, uh, for those that are just getting to know you, though, for the first time, let's rewind. Let's start kind of at the beginning of all this. Tell me a little bit about your career. Tell me a little bit about the backstory that took us to where we are today. Uh, so I, I joined in early 2001, around uh, February, and I actually did four years in the Marines. Um, and then I was shot on April 6, 2004. And um, shortly after, I was honorably discharged, got out, and then... Um, Ended up joining the army, wanted to become special forces and go down that road. Um, it was mainly due to a, a Green Beret medic that had saved my life, really. And so I was just kind of 
drawn to what these guys were, not knowing anything about them. And then uh, I just started going down the path and here I am today. And I did several years, eight, nine years, something like that at 10 Special Forces Group. And then I was teaching at the Special Forces uh, sniper course. That was where I ultimately found out I was sick. And um, I'm over 20 years now and still here as of today. Depresso Liber. Love my Green Beret buddies, man. You guys are you guys are a special breed. Tell me about how the initial diagnosis went down and the thing we kind of had to fight for some justice. And waiting in the wings to weigh in on this too, by the way, I, I, I haven't introduced yet, but Natalie Kawam from Whistleblower Law Firm out of Tampa. Uh, you've been his counsel for years. I just want to say first, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I just uh, unmuted this so I can speak now and you can hear me this way. I'm not just talking to myself. <laughs> Indeed. And we want you in on this conversation. Again, the lung tumor diagnosis, you were getting ready to do some, or you were doing some underwater training or something when it was discovered, and then you were cleared for takeoff, despite knowing that you had a tumor in your lungs. Yeah, so I was I was getting ready. I'd been um, accepted to become a warrant officer in Special Forces. So um, I was switching groups, and one of the things was, you know, they needed more divers and, and things like that. So I volunteered to go. And they said, great. So I went and did the, the pre-train up and everything. And in the pre-train up, it's re- the part of the package. The requirement is to do um, an x-ray. So I did that and everything was fine. Then I was continuing to train and then I got a call and it was like, hey, you know, because of your previous injury, your gunshot went into the lung. Uh, the dive medical officer down at the schoolhouse is requiring you mandatory that you go get a CT scan in order to, you know, get a a better look inside and then they can feel comfortable saying, all right, he'll, he'll be fine doing this training and we don't have to worry. So, so I did that. I did the scan and I asked, I said, Hey, what, you know, somebody going to tell me if anything's wrong. Cause I'm always concerned as I get older, um, just from the injury. And they said, yeah, we'll let you know if we hear any, or if anything's sound or whatever. And so, all right, left, didn't hear anything. Went about training, went down to dive school and, uh, slowly, not, not even slowly, really. It was like, it just hit me quick. Um, I mean, I went down to virtual, literal sea level and I was just struggling to do all the things I was doing a month ago. It's just swimming under, underwater for 50 meters or running three miles. And I couldn't do any of it. So ultimately I failed, went home. I was pretty discouraged. And then, you know, the symptoms started just chest pain. I was wheezing and coughing and everything. And you know, seasons were changing here in, in North Carolina, so kind of didn't know if maybe that was it. But uh, time went on. I think it was it was uh, for March March fifteenth. I was at work and I was lightheaded and just dizzy and and for the first time in my career, I was like, I I don't feel right. This is I just feel off. And I told the guys, I was like, all right, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go see the medic and uh, see what's going on. So I didn't want to go to the hospital and I, I didn't. I didn't want to go to anything big army. I just, nobody trusts them. Everybody knows we don't trust them and our medics are great. Um, so I went and saw our schoolhouse medic and we sat and talked for a while. And then as we were talking, he's like, Hey, we need to do an EKG. And he sat there and he kept assessing me. And finally he's like, all right, you need to go to the hospital. They can do further testing. And uh, so we debated about an ambulance ride versus me driving in and, he chose ambulance because he's like, I want you to be seen right away. So I took an ambulance over, wheeled me right through triage, right right into the waiting room and sat me down and said, wait here. And I think I was there for every bit of four hours before I ever even got to the back room. And then from there, I did a, 
did another x-ray they reread my scans and the doc basically is like well there's nothing we can do for you we're going to schedule you for a follow-up with pulmonology you know we think we we think we see something so we're not really sure but they'll they'll let you know so i was like okay uh any you know we asked 100 questions what else can we do should i leave should i stay um nothing was said so we left i left and then um it was a week later i think it was uh march 22nd i was at work again this time i'm like i'm leaning on this four drawer tall safe to try to stand up because i'm like my vision's going out i'm lightheaded and i'm i'm falling over at this point and um and everybody at work knows what's going on. And so my commander is like, you're going to the hospital right now. And I was like, well, I went there. They, they, they're not going to do anything for me. And he's like, all right, I agree. So he, he had a guy put, we, they basically carried me outside. They drove my car as close as they could to the building, put me in the car and they drove me 45 minutes to uh, the civilian hospital out by my house. And um, by the time I got there, I was pretty much unconscious and, um, uh, I think when they opened the door and I pretty much fell out, they picked me up, put me in a wheelchair, took me in. And then several minutes later, I completely passed out. And I just remember waking up in the back ER and, and, and apparently they did the whole sternum rub to wake me up and went and did some more testing and told them I had a follow-up pulmonology and this and that. And they said, okay, that's the best course of action continue. And then I left. And then uh, shortly after that, I pretty much that's when I started coughing up blood and was bleeding um, to the point where, I mean, it was so profuse. It was unreal that this much blood was coming out the way the worst part, the way it works is when you see anything specialty referral or specialty clinics within the military, it has to go to TRICARE Humana, which approves it. And then you get a, um, a date through the specialty clinic. And when I, when they called me finally after the week or whatever, it took referral to authorize it. The best I could get was like 30 days out. And so I'm like, Hey, why is it 30 days out? That seems ridiculous. Uh, and I was told literally is like, Hey, new patients are not a priority. Existing patients are. So you go to the back of the bus. Um, so I argued that for a while, for a couple of weeks to the point where I, I, mean, I was calling TRICARE. I was calling the hospital. I was calling anybody. Um, I think at one point I was literally crying on the phone to uh, Humana, to TRICARE, um, begging somebody to let me be seen. And then uh, I was at work again a few weeks later. And I was frustrated. My commander is like, hey, what, you know, what do we need to do to get you in there? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I've done everything. I'm, uh, you know, my rank only takes me so far, you know. And so he got he put his uniform on right then and there, drove to the hospital walked right into the pulmonologist's office and said, hey, either see him or release him. Doctor says, all right, well, I'm super busy. He can go out in town. That's totally fine. Well, when he, when he did that, and this is all stuff I didn't know or understand at the time, but I do now. So for him to release me out in town, he has to write a justification, send it back through TRICARE. TRICARE has to um, authorize it. Then TRICARE finds a hospital or a doctor, sends it to them. Then they call and they schedule me an appointment. Well, the doctor sent it to TRICARE. TRICARE sent it back to him because he messed something up. So he sent it back to TRICARE. Then TRICARE took however long to, re- to approve it and sent it out in town. But the the good part was once it got out in town, 
they called me, I think it was like less than 48 hours. They called me from the time they received the referral. Uh, they asked me for all my med records and everything. I got them to them within a day. Then uh, they called me again, said, we need some more. Got them to them again within a day. And they said, all right, your appointment's in. It was like two days. And the, the way the conversations were going, it was like, all right, something's up because they're they're moving quick. And I've never had this before. Um, so I go in, see the pulmonologist, and I did a breathing treatment test. And we sat and talked about, you know, developing asthma and uh, different symptoms of things that could occur as you get older. And it was like literally the last question he, he the doc asked, he's like, Hey, have you been bleeding? And I was like, yeah, actually I have quite a bit. And he's like, all right, go downstairs right now, do a scan. I'll call you. I think he called me the next day. And I think it was like a Tuesday or something. He called and he's like, all right, I, you need to come in and do a biopsy. There's something going on. That's kind of concerning. Uh, so I went in Monday and that was, uh, I remember being pretty, pretty nervous and scared because, you know, why else are you doing a biopsy of something? I woke up and that's when I was told I was uh, stage 3A with uh, lung cancer. Mm. God love you, brother. You went through a lot there. And that timeline speaks to, you know, months and months and months of activity, but it just shows how jacked up the system is. You've got insurance companies, you've got TRICARE, and they're managing the the trajectory of whether or not you can go from this doctor to a specialist. And, well, there's forms, and, well, we need to approve, or we should release you out right. to the community to use a non-military, non... Uh, it, it's just maddening. But what I want to bring in now next is after the stage three lung cancer diagnosis, after the tumor had been discovered... You know, you want to believe that doctors in good faith treated things timely and 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 did the best they could. But as we mm-hmm. just heard, it does not flow freely. It does not work to the patient's benefit, but it also almost seems like illegal. And that's where I want to bring in your attorney, Natalie Kawam, from the whistleblower law firm down in Tampa, Florida. And after just hearing all that, Natalie, can you share with us? When you knew this was a legal case, like when you knew that, that, that this just had to be fought. Well, you know, when I got the call and I spoke to, first it was Richard's mom um, and then Richard. And, you know, when I saw that, um, I reached out to some medical malpractice lawyers and they were saying, oh, you don't have a right to sue, be, you know, and to take an act of God or an act of Congress to do something. I mean, it was like very Debbie Downer-ish uh, responses I got from everyone. I'm, and I'm tech, I'm not a medical malpractice lawyer at all. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend to be one either. I usually do federal cases, complicated cases. But then I realized this was actually a complicated federal case, not necessarily a medical malpractice case because the malpractice happened. It just, how do they not have any rights? I mean, yesterday when I was talking about this, I said, they're treated worse than animals. Like, this is disgusting that our military, those who signed up to serve our country, have less rights and protections than me. And I'm an immigrant. Why do I have more rights than him? Uh, illegals, convicts, felons. I mean, they are treated like third class citizens. I'm just shocked and appalled that this exists and it exists in our country. We're a superpower and this is how we treat our military horrific. So the the rule of equity, I always say like the rule of equity, it's what's equity, what's fair? Well, what's fair is just to give them the same rights and protections as any of us. So when I started looking into the law and how many times this has been seen by the Supreme Court, and you're, very rarely do you see Justice Scalia and 
Ginsburg agreeing on one thing, Justice Thomas, and you know, just they all agreed that the Ferris Doctrine was an injustice, but it took Congress to do something. Now there was a case years ago, and I think it was Rodriguez, right, Richard, that uh, the guy died on TV. They tried to get the law passed, and they weren't successful. So, you know, of course, I didn't know all this going into this. So I kind of feel like maybe it was good. I had no idea what I was doing because the odds were very high. We yeah. had a really slim chance, actually no chance at all. It's like the movie Dumb and Dumber. You have a one in a million. I got a chance. So you're saying so, there's a chance. So you're saying exactly. there's a chance. Yeah. Uh, quickly, um, what were the violations or how was Richard exactly violated by the army? And then unpack a little bit about why he has no legal, rec- why he had no legal recourse because of this thing known as the Ferris Doctrine. So the violations were breach of the standard of care. So normally you have somebody whose job and only job is to read a, a scan. And when they read that scan, they have to look for any anomalies. There you had it. He had an anomaly. They read the scan. Did they tell him no? And they did that twice. They didn't tell him. They even cleared him for diving school. And the second time they told him it was walking pneumonia. They didn't inform him that he had a mass that actually several months later metastasized. So that was an issue with the violation of their standard of care, their duty as a medical professional to inform him, and their duty to treat and care for him. So that the, that that misdiagnosis, that malpractice has literally taken away his life. It's And I don't even want to say it's malpractice. It's almost criminal in a sense. It's criminal to let that happen because that mask could have been removed early on. My brother-in-law is a cancer surgeon. So I was fortunate to have my brother-in-law look at the scan when I first got Richard's case. Now explain why his legal recourse was so limited because of this thing known as the Ferris Doctrine. So the Ferris Doctrine is a 1950s Supreme Court case um, that basically said when you're in a line of duty and you're, let's say you're in malpractice while you're in war and battle, well, then you cannot sue the DOD because you basically anticipate, you know, you, you could get, you could get killed by a bullet. You know, the medic may not have all the, the care and skills and, and resources to care for you at the battlefield. So they were misapplying this case because this was not in battle. Fort Bragg is not in war. Fort Bragg is a, is, a, is a base with normal people walking around, shopping, eating. This was his annual, this was an annual routine exam. This was not something where, it, you know, there's bullets flying behind him and they can't figure out what scan they're looking at. So this was where they were misapplying. And by the way, it's not just Richard's case. Cause when I looked into it, it was horrific. It was all these matters that they do this to. Um, so they're basically trying to use the Ferris Doctrine as, as a way to, um, to evade liability and accountability. And so that's that was their best defense is, oh, the first doctrine is just slap it on everything. But that wasn't a fair defense and it was not representative of the matter. So it was not just disingenuous, it's false. You cannot use the first doctrine with every case because not every case is in battle like Richard's. So when we were going against the, you know, the grain with that, we filed our case in federal court, a lot of people did not want to support us. I mean, you can ask Richard, he, I don't know how many people he called to begin with. Richard, what was it? Like, how many people did you speak to or call? Well, at least a dozen attorneys at first before Natalie. Yeah. And then when I'm calling them, nobody wanted to touch us. You're going to sue the Department of Defense? No, I'm suing Casper to Friendly Ghost. Of course I'm suing the Department of Defense. What do you think? We have to deal with this. We have to take this on. 
local council that I had, they were dismissing, dropping this case. I mean, it was, it was so crazy to watch all these as big bad attorneys that you think they're such tough guys. And it's me, myself and I trying to like take on the DOD. How many phone calls, how many months, how many, how much time did you have to spend fighting for them to finally recognize that tort reform is not just needed, but it is damn necessary now? Oh, I, you know, once Natalie brought forth the plan of what we were going to do, it was pretty much every day. And it's, um, I mean, it was nonstop every day between sending emails, phone calls, um, and like Natalie was saying, almost begging people, um, you know, trying to convince them, like, you don't have to be afraid. It's me that's taking this on, you know, but, um, yeah, it was, it was nonstop. And then to be honest, the hardest part about it wasn't those calls and those emails. It was the other victims out there that were calling and emailing and texting nonstop. And I'd probably spent a better part of the first year um, almost every night. I don't even know if I slept much more than three hours a night. I mean, I'd be talking to families in, in, in Asia somewhere, Europe somewhere. And, you know, most of them, it's usually the same story. They're like, I've never told anybody this because nobody ever cared. Um, so it was kind of an all encompassing between the efforts in DC and just the efforts with, with other uh, families out there that has experienced this. Yeah. Right on. You became a champion for them. I mean, you became somebody that they hoped they could, you know, rely on to really push this over the line. Can I ask just as you navigated through the halls of Congress to talk about this, this is an issue that rocked the Pentagon, obviously, um, who were friend and who was a foe? Are there people we should call out? I'm assuming Natalie's laughing right now. Um, <laughs> I had to put on you. There's yeah, there's what's what's kind of funny about it was, you know, I'm not I'm not dumb by any means, but who really understands Congress and its inner workings and how it works, you know? Uh, so it was it was a fire hose off the get go. Um, and I was I mean, Natalie and I would sit and talk for hours after every day, whether it was in D.C. or I was at home. And, and I just had to learn this process. But um, it was almost weird because everybody who I thought was our friend was kind of fishy, kind of iffy. And then the ones who I didn't think um, were on our side were on our side. So um, the biggest um, I just say the biggest opposition we had was Senator uh, Graham. Then the worst part about it was everybody underneath him, because he was the chair, pretty much said, whatever Senator Graham says is what I'll do. Um, and that's when I really finally realized that it's not necessarily um, a congressional system. It's a it's a king with lords beneath him and the lords will follow the king with whatever he says. He rules the land. Why would Senator Lindsey Graham have opposition against a fellow veteran, I might add, just trying to get justice for a damn tumor in his lungs that because, turned cancerous? Because that's it right there, because he's a fellow veteran and he's a JAG attorney and he's in Congress and Senate and judiciary. He understands it more than anybody else to, to the inner workings. And he knows exactly what I know, which is it's all about money at the end of the day. And he doesn't want to mess with that. 
it's all about the industri- military industrial complex, where the money comes from, how the money is spent, and everything else. And what I've learned is bodies are cheap. Bodies are free to make. The citizens pay for the bodies to re- be raised and put them in the military. You know, I, I, when I found out this decision um, about the denial, it was funny. I, I About five minutes later, I ran to the computer and I Googled. I said, what's an F-22 cost? And I did the math, you know, because every soldier that dies, it's $400,000 life insurance. And you figure, let's just ballpark another hundred grand for funerals and blah, 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 right? Half a million dollars per soldier. Most people out there are going, oh, my God, half a million dollars. That's insane. Well, when you're talking about whatever billion dollars for a plane, you could lose 300 bodies to every one plane. So what's more important, though, the plane you got to spend billions of dollars to build or the free bodies that are being made on a daily basis being birthed in the hospital by the citizens who are paying for them through taxpayer dollars for 18 years until they can enlist. And Senator Graham said it best when uh, he was confronted by Matt Grant from Fox 46, you know, and he said, I don't need, we don't need people suing if a test pilot crashes and dies and then them going after the, the companies. Well, that's what it comes down to is then you're pulling money from companies that are building these machines and everything else for war profiting, right? This kind of all co- encompasses the same thing. Cause I'm getting a lot, we get a lot of these questions now where it's like, what do they care? It's not their money, right? It's a big one. DOD is only responsible for the first hundred thousand. Then secretary of the treasury or the treasury department comes up with the rest, right? So you're going, why do they care? It's not their money, but it is their money because they know that every year they have to report to the armed services committee of the house and the Senate. Well, if they were spending $50 billion on med mal cases at some point, the legislators are going to say, why are we still spending this much money? Why haven't you fixed this problem? Then they're going to start imposing rules on them and making them fix themselves. So now they've got to acknowledge a problem, spend money, hire better doctors probably, and do the right thing. So it starts to affect their budget just in a different way that people are not understanding. And that's Mm -hmm. really all coming down to. And again, you know, bodies are cheap. They're, They're essentially free, you know, F-22s are not. Abrams are not. Wow. And I like that kind of analogy there. I'll dumb it down even further, but like, why should we sweep the floor? It'll just show how much dust there is. Like, right. yeah. Like, like why, why deal with this? Let's just cover it up. Let's just, you know, to Senator Graham's position, you, you know, let's not get in the weeds with this because we're really going to see there's a hell of a huge problem and we don't want to have that problem. So if we don't talk about it, let the Ferris doctrine, keep it tamped down. Nobody can sue for malpractice. There is no problem. Bodies. Are cheap. And to me, it's, it's a mindset thing and they're showing their, their true colors. Cause me, I'm sitting here going, like Natalie said, I thought I'm just trying to make it better. I'm trying to, I could have been cured essentially, you know, 95% cured. I could be working right now. I could be a body that's deployed as a warrant officer, still fighting, still serving. But instead, what's easier is, because if I stay in, the DOD is responsible for me, for anything, right? And another good thing there, another thing they're very good at is the moment, like, let's say your job title has five duty descriptions that you must meet in order to be a Green Beret. The moment you can't meet one, such as deploying because you're on treatment, like I am, they throw you out and then they go, oh, well, you're going to get care out there. It's it's all going to be great. You know, things are going to be fine. So it's like, no, what you're doing is you don't want to take responsibility and take care of me. You want to throw me into the VA system to universal health care. And then you want to put me on the taxpayer dollars instead of the DOD budget. 
That's what you want to do. I mean, they'll get you out in less than six months. Once you once you are unable to meet those criteria for your job, you're gone. That's the name of the game. And it's it's dollars, but not in the traditional sense that everybody's thinking. Man, ugly reality, truly ugly reality. I'm sorry you're having to deal with this, brother. Uh, let's bring in Natalie again real quick. Tell me uh, uh, again, we were able to then get not the Ferris Doctrine overturned, but we were able to get tort reform put into an NDAA and then walk me through this claims process that you guys just finished. You were able to actually make a claim for medical malpractice. Correct. So it's not an amendment to the um, FTCA, which is what we originally would we wanted. However, to change FTCA to amend that, which is the Federal Tort Claims Act, it would require the Judiciary Committee, which has um, which has uh, jurisdiction over these issues, to approve that. Unfortunately, like Richard said, um, Lindsey Graham um, was a chair at the time, and he completely was an obstacle. He was just outwardly against it. So we were left to uh, where Senator Inhofe and Senator Reid were able to agree on getting claims being administered by the DOD, which is kind of like, and I can compare it to like workers' comp. You don't get to go to a court, like you don't go to federal court to make a lawsuit when you have injured at the workplace, but rather it's an administrative process. So who ultimately will decide these cases? The answer is shocking. You're filing a claim for medical malpractice. The DOD is the one that has the oversight, the power, the jurisdiction over it. And these claims are reviewed internally by whatever branch you follow it with. And then there is a, a process here. Yeah. Okay. So just let me get this straight, though. Big picture. I can make a claim against the DOD for medical malpractice, but the DOD gets to determine whether or not they're <laughs> going to pay that claim. Doesn't that sound kind of jacked up? <laughs> No, you're funny because the way you said it. They're the judge. <laughs> judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah, I get to ask them if they'll accept my claim against them. Yeah. Oh, my God. The worst part about it is it's, this is a, a thing that's been becoming upsetting, especially now. It's like those are the very people that swore the same oath as I did. But here's the other part. Like, in, in my, I always quote my father on this one because – you know, he was always like, how does that general not do that? He's like, he's in the military. What the hell? And it's like, no, no, no. What you don't understand is they're politicians at that level. They're not in the military thinking the same thing we are thinking. They're thinking politically at that point. And what they're very good at is careerists and careerism. And, you know, and, and what I think is going on, too, is by settling my claim, somebody's going to answer for that. The DOD does not let anybody off the hook for something they have to answer for. Uh, let's, uh, kind of stick to landing here. And, uh, we made a claim. Okay. Now we've gone to the Fox guarding the hen house and said, okay, please. Can you accept my claim? Lunk answer whole thing. Um, tell me about the denial and then, you know, where do we go from here? Well, so from my point of view with the denial, I was surprised. I was not angry nor shocked. Um, and if Natalie remembers, there's been several times I've said it to her and actually very recently before the denial, we were meeting with Senator Mullen and I literally said, I said, they're going to try to use my living still against me. They're going to try to do everything. They're going to stall. They're going to do whatever they want. They don't have to do anything. They, and they know it because nobody's making them. 
And what they were doing was, you know, it's almost like a military action. It's like they're going to go with show of force. So if they say we didn't even pay stay school, why in the hell would we pay you anything else? Anybody extra, anybody after me, you know what I mean? It's like stay school couldn't even get it. You're not going to get it, you know? And, um, and I, and I totally believe that that's what they're doing and they're going to do this and they're going to keep stalling because whoever challenges other than apparently dumb and dumber, Natalie and I, uh, who challenges the military, you know, to this extent after this many years, Natalie, from the attorney perspective, how in the hell were they able to deny this claim? They were able to deny the claim based on some, again, let's go back to what we're dealing with, right? What are we dealing with? We're dealing with incompetent doctors, right? That basically committed this malpractice. So we got the same incompetent doctors reviewing these claims. They're saying that they used another doctor. So this is how it works. Like normally, if this is a regular med mal case, we would have a weight of evidence, right? I'd have seven doctors reviewing this, which we did. All seven said, this is malpractice. They All they need to find is one DOD, one practitioner, one um, healthcare provider to say that this isn't malpractice. That's all they have. I don't, we wouldn't even know if this person's a veterinarian. We wouldn't know anything about this person's background because they refuse to provide us this, that information about who the provider is that reviewed this and said it was not malpractice. That's a lack of transparency. That's how bad this is. We don't have any transparency in this process. And they obviously, with the lack of transparency, they can say and do whatever they want. Uh, and it's their, oh, well, we have a, we have a physician that reviewed this, uh, and he does not believe or she does not believe it's uh, malpractice. So that's it. Game over. That's how it works. And like all law cases, I mean, even if you just watch it on TV, I mean, there is a, a professional that gives an opinion and then they analyze that professional's ability to give that opinion. That's so, yeah. And, you know, Phil, this reminded me of, you know, two things. Like, first of all, I thought Mike Waltz did a great job when he was up there at a press conference where he was like, for them to delay, to not tell him he had this tumor in his lung and even to clear him and then six months delay. And everybody knows with cancer, any delay is bad, like no bueno. For them to say that's not malpractice is, and he used the word bullshit. And I was actually happy because it really is, it's, it's aggravating. And just because a doctor says it's not malpractice doesn't mean it's not malpractice. And I thought about years ago, remember when big tobacco and the cigarette companies were up there testifying before Congress and the scientists are going, nope, cigarettes do not cause cancer. No, sir, cigarettes do not cause cancer. And it's called a hired gun in, in law. When you get a scientist or a doctor and you hire them to say whatever you need them to say, right? Because they answer to the green. They're no longer a doctor or a scientist to me. They are a hired gun. They'll say and do whatever you're going to pay them. They'll get paid a higher amount because they are a doctor or, or whatever. Here you got these doctors or whatever they are, vet, veterinarians, or I don't know what the hell they are, um, quacks, uh, rubber stamping these denials. And that's the problem. So we don't even know their, their, what their credibility is, what their experience is, whether they're board certified, nothing. Just like big tobacco, nope, they denied that cigarettes cause cancer. And they were willing to do that. And they were willing to say it before Congress. And here we have the same thing. Now, the interesting part of this is the Army does admit that they breached the standard of care when they didn't tell him about the cancer. So when you breach the standard of care, in law, that's called malpractice. It's kind of like me killing you, but saying, I killed you, but it's not murder. That is murder, killing someone. Breaching the standard of care, 
it's malpractice, but they want to play that game. Sorry, we breached the standard care, but we did not commit malpractice. So that's what we're dealing with here. And you just mm. want to like scratch your head and say, when am I going to wake up from this nightmare? Because it's just getting worse and worse. And it's, I'd like to say it's laughable when they say things to me, but it's not because it's so upsetting. Like you're just like, and they're saying it with a straight face. I mean, we were in Senator Mullen's uh, office and the lawyer that was there was like, yes, sir, we do care about our, our soldiers. And he was like, you do. So you know what you kind of done to Mr. Stacewell by denying his claim. And he goes, everyone knows with cancer, early treatment is, is the most important thing. And da, da, da. And she's like, yes, but our expert said it's not malpractice. And he looked at her and he goes, so do you personally believe this? And she's like, our expert. And she refused to say about her personal belief. He's like, I'm asking you if you, he goes, you know what? I realized something. If this is what you do day in and day out, maybe you also shouldn't have this as your job because you're part of this problem now too. You're getting everybody just regurgitating whatever they're told to say. And they, they look like clowns when they say this. We really have a fight now to deal with, with how they're processing these claims. It's worth pointing out the denial rate of these claims, which the Army has responded since the law took effect in 2019, 144 have been denied. Let's just end here, Rich. You've obviously had your first claim denied. We're going to appeal that. Sounds like Natalie's on the case and she's got her fist ready to fight. The Secretary of the Army took an interesting step. They offered they offered to pay you or something like that. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, so I was told she offered um, 600000 or something for, I don't know, whatever she said, doing my job and whatever else she said. But what I know is I was also supposed to go on a trip at the end of the month for the last two months. I knew about it, and now it's not going to probably happen. And I know one thing with, with the military and DOD is nothing happens until it happens. Um, and I'm not, I'm not calling her a liar. I'm just saying, and until I see anything, I'm not a believer, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of, kind of like what Natalie was saying. It's like, so you're going to pay me something for admitting you're wrong, but then you're going to deny the claim by saying you're not wrong. So it's like this weird admittance of we are wrong, but I can't say any more than that because my position won't allow me to. And I know that's the case with a lot of people. I mean, I hear all the time, I, um, I get this, you know, hey, you know, we're really happy what you're doing. We think this is great, but don't use my name because of my job, you know, and, and the, the system has it rigged to where everybody is in fear. And I and I get it to some degree, you know, everybody's got a family, times are tough right now, inflation's through the roof, yada, 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 got it. But like nothing ever ends unless people just start ending it, you know, but right now the system is set up to establish fear is if you buck the system and go against the grain. They offered you $600,000 to just go away so you could take the money, but they didn't have to admit medical malpractice. Right. Mm. Um, I'll tell you what, I have reached out to the secretary of the army. I've gone back and forth with some e emails as of right now. Uh, they could not commit to being on this call today, although I invited them. We're going to look to maybe Monday, but I'm going to press the issue. I'm going to ask Christine Wormuth, Secretary of the Army currently, um, how she feels about this and, and, and what she thinks of the decision to offer to pay you, but not admit malpractice. 
and add to my list after this conversation, Senator Lindsey Graham. I want to hear more about how he thinks. I want, I, I really do. I want to hear more about, you know, why he thinks this is fair in light of everything you've endured, how this is justice. You know, let's have him explain this to us because right now I'm shocked and literally jaws on the floor because I cannot understand why it's not enough for you to have proven that they missed the opportunity to diagnose and treat you early. But now that they, that you had legal recourse with at least the ability to make a claim, how they can deny your claim. It's mind blown, buddy. But uh, I'm with you. I can't wait to continue to follow this. And um, any final thoughts, Natalie, any, you know, any words of wisdom we can take away from what we're witnessing right now unfolding? Yeah. I mean, if anyone and everyone can, they can reach out to our congressman and senator and tell them how important it is that they actually do something about the DOD's decisions um, and how they're just absolutely undermining the whole goal of this. And one of the things is Richard didn't do this because he wanted a, a handout. Nobody wants handouts. Everybody wants what's right. And the whole purpose of this law was to allow for some accountability and protections for our service members. This is incompetent doctors from the start to incompetent review process. Like this is insult to injury. And it's scary. Natalie Kawam, attorney with whistleblower law firm down in Tampa, Florida, and uh, Master Sergeant Richard Stasekel. Man, I, I I can't thank you enough for coming on with me. Um, I look forward to getting to know you. I told you I got family down in the Whispering Pines area, down around Pinehurst. So, uh, you know, we're going to get a beer together the next time I'm in your neck of the woods. Love some North Carolina. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to pray for you. Uh, continue to pray that you get justice. We're not guaranteed justice on this earth. I know we rarely get it, but I know you're a fighter for it, Rich. And um, thank you for everything you're doing for those of us that are going to follow behind you. Appreciate it. And I just want to normally push for anything like this, but there is a web page on Facebook and it's like Sergeant First Class Richard State School or support Sergeant First Class Richard State School. Um, actually, quite a bit of people have been starting to follow it. Um, if anybody would like to or could, it's been kind of a centerpiece for um, – um, ideas on what we can do and how to move forward and um, if anybody would like to take a look at it I'd appreciate it yeah man again what's that website I believe it's uh, support Sergeant first class Richard Stasekel gotcha and Stasekel S-T-A-Y-S-K-A-L correct we'll just leave this as to be continued but I look yep. forward to talking to you both and uh, you know like we said especially this week here Lord's got you in his hands man so let's uh, live to fight another day okay Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. Take care. Now, in closing, I'll read the reply I recently received from an Army spokesperson on behalf of my request to interview Secretary of the Army, Christine Warmuth. The Army has received 204 claims alleging malpractice against active duty personnel. 144 have been denied, although 95 of the claimants still have the right to appeal. 40% of the claims were denied because they failed to meet the statutory requirements of a qualifying medical treatment facility or failed to meet the two-year statute of limitations. Others alleged malpractice by providers other than DOD personnel, while some others alleged things that are not even considered malpractice. All decisions are based upon tort law as practiced in a majority of U.S. jurisdictions and Department of Defense rules, which require that all four elements of tort law are met before damages are awarded. These elements are commonly known as duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages. In other words, damages are not awarded simply because an error was made. 
it must be shown that the error caused additional harm to the individual by adversely affecting that individual's prognosis and treatment. The Army is committed to ensuring that service members receive the best possible medical care and that all claims are treated fairly and with proper consideration. We'll continue to track this story and report back when we hear more from the Army. I'm Navy veteran and journalist for ConnectingVets.com, Phil Briggs. And I'll be back again next week with more incredible stories from our military vets when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye on Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.